We are in John chapter 4, please, if you'd turn there with me. John chapter 4. I've titled this series of seven sermons, Welcome to Pine Grove Community Church. We've been looking at who we are, not merely as individuals, but collectively as a church, and then (laughs) saying if we're going to define who we are and our purpose, that we could live more in light of it. And I'd say, if you're going to summarize what I've been saying is, love the church. Give yourself to her. Um, So, and I'm saying that because a significant problem, that's always been a problem, but it feels particularly so is that we just don't love the church. We don't even love the church like we love other Christian organizations often. We'll speak so highly of Christian groups, but we rarely speak like that of our church. We'll give time and energy and money to these groups, and we don't do that for the church. We may love this or that big name celebrity pastor, this or that theological bent, but the people of our local church, the leaders, the saints, and so at our local church. Not so much. And so what I wanted to do in this seven sermons is define who we are and use it as an exhortation for you to love the people here. The actual people, give yourselves to them. Commit yourself to them loyally and lovingly. Well, this final sermon is about how to bring people in. Evangelism. Last week we did that by looking at our lives as salt and light and the impact that we have and our godliness on others out there. And this week we're going to talk more about our words. Um, Sharing the gospel that saves sinners eternally to God and telling others to encourage you to hopefully light some kind of a fire for prayer and initiative that you might share the gospel because there are people in our community, of course who don't know Christ, but there are people in our community who don't know Christ, that God is ripe, ready to be plucked. But he uses us. He sends us. And so I pray that we can be more an an active part in that. I'm going to read the entire section here on this instance of Jesus evangelizing this woman of Samaria at the well. So we'll read verses 1 to 42. Now, when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee, and he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, so Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. That's noon. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink for the answer, a woman of Samaria? For Jews had no dealings with the Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him. And he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, 
You have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. Jesus said to her, Go, call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, You are right in saying I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one you have now is not your husband. What you have said is true. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit. And those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming. He who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. Just then his disciples came back. They marveled that he was talking with a woman. But no one saw and went away. What do you seek? Or why are you talking with her? So the woman left her water jar and went away into town and said to the people, Come, see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? They went out from the town and were coming to him. Meanwhile, the disciples were urging him, saying, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about. So the disciples said to one another, Has anyone brought him something to eat? Jesus said to them, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Do, not, do you not say, look, there are yet four months, then comes the harvest. Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for harvest. Already the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life, so that sower and reaper may rejoice together. For here the saying holds true, one sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap that for which you did not labor. Others have labored, and you have entered into their labor." Many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them, and he stayed there two days, and many more believed because of his word. They said to the woman, It is no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. After the two days he departed for Galilee, For Jesus himself had testified that a prophet has no honor in his hometown. So when he came to Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him, having seen all that he had done in Jerusalem at the feast, for they too had gone to the feast. Let's pray. Father, your word is wonderful. What a delight. Help us to love them, teach our souls to observe them, give us understanding for we're simple. Open our our mouths wide. And fill them with your word. And so, God, turn to us. Be gracious to us. Establish our footsteps in your word. 
Do not let iniquity have dominion over us, please. In Jesus' name. May our eyes shed streams of water because the world does not keep your law. In Jesus' name, amen. So Jesus had (laughs) been in the south in Judea, and he now is heading back to the north to Galilee. And if you looked at a map, you'd see Judea in the south, then Galilee, or uh, then Samaria, and then Galilee. So in order to get to Galilee from Judea, you have to go through Samaria unless you're going to take a big, long uh, side route. So he's heading up there. He uh, had begun his public ministry in chapters 2 and 3, and he's getting somewhat famous, and he leaves, and he wants to go and preach the gospel elsewhere. So he's going through Samaria. You see this. You know the story. It's about a 30-mile walk from where he would have been to the city of Sychar. He's worn out. Isn't that something? He's fully man. He's tired. He's too tired to go into town with the disciples, and so he just sits down at the well. Now, we know he knows all things. This is not an accident that he meets this woman. And yet God's providence uses humanity, uses our weariness. And so there he is, primed and ready for this woman to come. She comes, he speaks to her, and you can tell she's taken aback by that. Jews and Samarians hate each other. We don't have time to get into the details, but they don't like each other at all. And, and yet he loves her. And that's one of the main things I want you to see in this text is his love for this woman. It's astounding. I read and reread. Yesterday I was staining uh, my daughter's new bunk bed, and I listened to this. I was out there four hours. However many times you can listen to John 4 in four hours. over, And that's the thing. This, his love for this woman is astounding. And so we get this front row seat then to this incredible instance of the love of the Son of God, fully man, fully God, for this rather immoral woman. Evangelism. And so what I wanted to do in this text is not give you like a manual for evangelism. Like here's how to do evangelism like Jesus. I think there's lots to learn in that regard but more just hopefully give you a heart that somewhat mirrors our Lord's for this woman, for those in your life who, like this woman, have no hope of eternal life without Christ. That's what I'd like to gain from this. A couple of details uh, from the text. In verse 10, you have this note of living water. Uh, The living water there is the Holy Spirit. When you get uh, to chapter 7, verse 38, I had a stain on my hand at one point. I couldn't make my phone go back to John 4, so I had to listen all the way through. And in John 7, it was really helpful because in 7.38, it's explicit there that the Holy Spirit is the living water. And so we know that when we come to Christ, by faith, the third member of the Trinity, God himself, eternal God, indwells us. And he will never leave, and he is the life of God within us. Now, in this age, we experience that not yet in its full realization. Of course, you're aware of that, right? We, we have it already, but not yet in its fullness. And yet what we have already is significant, isn't it? The hope you get, the joy, sometimes the peace, the assistance, the comfort, And 
that is just a foretaste of the great full reality to come. So that's what he's telling this woman. If you want to dwell with God, if you want God to dwell in you, it's through me. So that's the living water. Then later when Jesus is explaining to her that you'll neither worship in Jerusalem nor in this mount, what he's saying is, The promise from of old, from the time of Abraham, is that through a son, through Christ, worship, all nations will come to him. It's no longer about locale. It's about worshiping God spiritually with truth. And so this is saying that a temple on a mountain in Jerusalem is nothing. Or for the Samaritans on that mountain is nothing. God is seeking worshipers from every kind of people, even degraded, immoral Samaritan women, even Scandinavian stock, Germanic stock in Rhinelander. And so God is welcoming all who will come through faith in Christ to worship him. Isn't that awesome? You, me, God's seeking you. So that's another Peace. Uh, I think that's a, I was trying to anticipate some of the questions you have about this, and those are the two I had. So let's get into it. Let's look at evangelism and our church. And one of the places I first want to start is with a common error in Pine Grove. I love you enough to get at it. How many of you grew up in a church or maybe a denomination where altar calls and sinner prayers were common. Any of you? Is that, a, is that a thing? Really? Only that few? Like, seriously, raise your hand if that was common in the... Okay, more. Okay. And you may notice that you don't hear or see that here at all. We don't conclude our services with an altar call. I've been at churches where that was a Weekly occurrence, every Sunday at the end, an altar call. I was at a church every Sunday at the altar call that everybody came forward and apparently got saved every week. I still don't know what to make of that. And we don't lead people either in the service. I don't, if I'm in an evangelistic conversation, in a, you know, like a sinner's prayer. And some of you have talked to me about why not. You wish that we would. Um, one of the reasons is we just don't see that in Scripture. We don't see altar calls in the Bible. We don't see a sinner's prayer, and we definitely don't see it here. And so let me get at it this way. I hope we all believe that if you are baptized as an infant, that doesn't guarantee your salvation. Or if you're baptized as an adult. You don't, at the end of your life, on your deathbed, hopefully, put any hope alone in, uh, when I was seven days old, I was baptized. I'm going to heaven. Now, we know that there are denominations who do put hope in that. And we don't agree with that. That is unbiblical. In fact, that's apparent because only through faith in Christ, right? Nor do we put basis in, I'm a good person, or put 
hope in that. That's the hope that you see on people's deathbed. It'll all work out. I've been good. God's good. Sometimes you put hope in the denomination that you're a part of. I'm Catholic. I'm in. I'm whatever. So we can, as humans, we have this frailty, we have this temptation to put hope for eternal life in things that themselves are not Christ. Baptism, denomination, good works or something. What I have seen repeatedly is that our kind of church, we don't put hope in baptism, we don't put hope in good works, we don't put hope in that. I'm part of Pine Grove. What we put hope in is the sinner's prayer. That's like our infant baptism. That's our sacrament that saves us. I prayed the sinner prayer, I'm good. Or this loved one that had no love for Christ, never attended church when he was seven, he prayed the sinner's prayer. And so he's good. Now, let me pause there. What I might have brought up may be very painful for you. And I debated whether or not to say something like that. And I'm aware that I may be causing a lot of pain and sorrow from you. And I'm not saying that just to do that. I'm saying that because a sinner's prayer is not Christ. An altar call and coming forward and making that kind of walk is not where we put hope for eternal life. And it really shrinks down what salvation is. Salvation is a work of God in us that leads to a living relationship with the God in heaven where he becomes who we love. And that incrementally, slowly over time, often much more gradually than we like, changes us. And the main thing it changes is how we love his people. How we give ourselves to his people. And if we don't have any record of that, and yet we say to sinners' prayer, then the reality is we're just not Christian. And that's, that's important to say because one of the things that happens is you have a, a friend who maybe is dying and 20 years ago they prayed the sinner's prayer and so you don't feel any inclination to urge them to repent and believe in the gospel because they prayed a prayer and love. For, but there's no evidence of any kind of actual living faith and love for God and his people in that life. And there is a real heaven, and there is a real hell, and there is a God who will judge the living and the dead. So you can't put hope in my infant baptism. You can't put hope in the church I attend. You can't put hope in your good works, and you can't put hope in a prayer. We put hope in Christ that changes our lives. This is very important to say. And so, in saying that, What does save us? What saves us? Well, it's who? It's Jesus Christ. It's Him. 
He is our Savior. Who could save this Samaritan woman? Jesus Christ. And he came to her in incredible, unthinkable care and love. Had this very awkward, socially unacceptable conversation with her. Told her things that rocked her world. And hopefully we'll see her in heaven someday because she was vitally connected to this God-made man. And so are you vitally connected to this God-made man, to Jesus Christ? By faith. Now, you may pray a prayer to express that at the beginning of your Christian life. You could even walk down here and kneel. Please do. But it's about life going forward with him. It's about a life that he gives you inside, changes you. It's about a life that you endure in until the end that is often expressed by love and commitment for his people. In 1 John, you cannot say you love God and not love his people. So let's consider Christ's love for sinners. John chapter 4 is in the Bible, not mainly on, as a manual on how to do evangelism, but mainly in order to show you the great love for which Christ has for sinners. It's to glorify Jesus Christ. So let's start there. Let's start. Let's consider this great love of Christ for this woman. So we already saw this is a hated enemy and a very sinful person. And this isn't the kind of person you'd probably invite over for dinner, I doubt. He'd be taken aback and disgusted by her behavior. And not only is she an enemy, not only is she very immoral, he's God. This is God sitting at that well. This is the God of the Jacob that she's telling him is as well. This is Jacob's creator. And he stoops down to her, doesn't he? he you can see she has his care and attention. Husbands, here's a little note for how to care for your wife. She, he's tired. He's worn out. It's the heat of the day. And look at how he spends his time that she might come to him. He's there, present with her. He sets aside all weariness. And you can tell, at the back end of this, he's invigorated. He doesn't even need to eat. This love for this woman and this care for her fills his soul with a nourishment that he doesn't need food anymore. Why? Because he loves her. And so, note, this is the kind of love that he has for you. We're this woman, aren't we? Does Christ have time for you? Does Christ come to you? Does he care about you? Yeah, look at this. Does Christ care to save sinners? Yeah, I mean the title, the purpose for which he came. I came to seek and to save the lost. So as you consider evangelism, is God still in the business of saving sinners? 
Yeah, look it. And take note then, the center of this is the teaching that he gives to his disciples in verses 35 to 37. Again, looking at Jesus, he loves, gives his attention to sin-wrecked humans. Two, in this little sermonette with this analogy of farming and harvest, he displays for us his utter commitment to use us in evangelism. So he uses this analogy of farming and harvest. We, we get it. Knee high by the... Right. We all get agricultural and farming and harvest. So again, God is very kind to us in putting the Bible in our language, making a world with experiences that we can relate to. And we know when the harvest is ready. How? Well, we pay careful attention to it. You know the color You can pay attention to something getting ready for harvest. I've been listening to a podcast on the history of the Lakota Indians, and what's their most famous guy? I can't think of his name. Very famous Indian chief. And when he was being trained, they could pay, they were so in tune with nature and the ground that they could tell by subtle variations in the shifting of the ground where water was and where it wasn't. With all to the world percent precision. Because they were that attentive to the world around them, to nature. It wasn't like magic. It was just they, could, they knew it. And what Jesus is saying is that kind of attentiveness that you give to the harvest, rightly so, I want you to give to the people in this world evangelistically. He means this as a bit of a rebuke. John Calvin says it this way. He, Jesus, intended indirectly to point out how much more attentive the minds of men are to earthly than to heavenly things. For we burn with an intense desire of harvest. We carefully reckon up months and days. But it is astonishing how drowsy and indolent we are in gathering the heavenly wheat. Daily experience proves that this wickedness is not only natural to us, but can scarcely be torn from our hearts. For while all provide for the earthly life to a distant period, how indolent are we in thinking about heavenly things? Right? That's what he's trying to get to them. You're so careful to know when the wheat's ready, but are you so careful about your soul and the souls of others? And in that, what he's saying is, I put you on this earth in order to reap a harvest. Now, this note of uh, you can reap what others have sown. In verse 38, I sent you to reap for that which you did not labor. Others have labored, and you have entered the labors. Who are the others? Who are the sowers? He's talking about the prophets. He's talking about all of those that he sent before him. He's talking about those that he put on earth before who brought his word to his people. They did the reaping, or they did the sowing. They did the watering, and now the disciples get to reap. And this is also a greater principle in evangelism. If we have the privilege of leading somebody to Christ, and probably because there are many others who came before us and planted and watered, and we might get cocky sometimes, like, I led somebody to Christ, which is great. It's a delight. 
I'm not knocking, but give glory to God. There's probably 10 other people before you, parents and pastors and coworkers and so on. And God just allowed you to come in and reap. Another way to say it is, we plant, we water, but God is the fruitful one. God is the one. We give glory to God. But anyways, just look at this. Jesus is giving us a way to view the world. He wants to give you new eyes to look at the world. If you have an apple tree in your backyard, you, sometime in August, maybe September, you start looking at it very carefully to see if they're ripe. He wants you to look at the world like that. He wants you to look at the world as a harvest where many souls are ripe to be brought in. Which means, of course, he cares about evangelism. He wants to reward us for this work. And so what I want to do in this first point is just encourage you. Jesus loves sinners, and Jesus has sent you to reap a harvest in Rhinelander. That's what we're here for. Do you have hope in Jesus Christ? I mean, do you actually have hope that when you die, he will be sufficient to take you to heaven, having forgiven you all your sins? Is that your hope? One amen. (laughs) Would you give glory to God? He saved you. Do you have that hope in you? Right? We do. So let's give it to others. Okay, so there's Christ. Give him glory. He loves sinners. He's put you on this earth to be a part of this work. Now let's look at four, I think, other encouragements from this text. I had a list of 20. Giving you four. First, Jesus is our master, correct? What is a disciple? He's one who follows Christ. And so we learn here that evangelism is to be part of a disciple's life. I wanted to point that out is sometimes we may think like it's the pastor's job and it is. Or it's, there's some specific saints who are evangelist kind of disciples and I'm just a different kind. But no, if we're followers of Christ, there is a normal part of our life that we have a concern for the lost. That's what he's telling his disciples. I'm sending you out as reapers into a harvest. Now it is true that there will be some who seem particularly skilled and gifted by the Lord in evangelism. It's like they sneeze and people come into the kingdom. They have a personality that's very free and engaging with people. And, and, God has brought them to a place to use their God-given personality in order to enter into these evangelistic conversations. But I just want to show you, is not this conversation Jesus had with this woman very awkward? I, maybe you've read this too much, but if you just could like delete the files related to this and read it for the first time, you'd probably kind of be cringy. Or if you were there watching Jesus do this, you're like, I can't believe he just said that. Oh my goodness, this This is very socially awkward. And yet, that's always going to be evangelism. That kind of social awkwardness is going to be part of our lives as disciples if we're going to tell people about Jesus. It's never going to seem relationally acceptable 
and normal. It's always going to be very nervous because you know what we got to say to people. But it's a normal part of our life. Second, I've already said this before, but I want to say that he saves a woman that most of us would think was too far from God's grace. I thought about preaching this sermon from Acts chapter 9, or is it 8? I think it's 9 in, in Paul's conversion. Because Paul's another one of those that you wouldn't think would be becoming a Christian. I mean, he's killing Christians. Now, this woman is exactly like that. And, and so I just want to make sure that you know, again, that the people in your life, it's often those that you think have no hope of coming to Christ that come to Christ because God likes to show us how dumb we are and how wise he is. So there's no amount of pride, greed, lying, transgenderism, political insanity that puts one beyond the reach of God's grace. So you may have people in your life that you are giving up on. You've prayed for years, maybe decades. There seems to be no movement towards Christ. Keep praying. Keep going. Get some encouragement from God's saving of this woman. Who would have picked her? Yeah, Jesus. Who would have thought that when Jesus brought up the fact that the man she's with isn't her husband, and she's had five husbands before that, that she would stomp away offended at Jesus' hard words? That she was ripe for the harvest. This woman was ripe. With five marriages before, and she's on a sixth man who isn't her husband, and how many, who knows how many more? And she's ripe. She received mercy, and so who can't? So first, evangelism is normal, though it's going to be an awkward part of our lives. Second, nobody is too far from God's grace. Third, Jesus cares ultimately for the eternal life of the person. Jesus told this woman of the water of life, of the indwelling Holy Spirit that leads to eternal life, that God is seeking true worshipers. So we live in a world where people are weary, lonely, full of guilt. They know they need atonement. They're seeking it. And here we are with the one word, the gospel, that is a salve for their soul, that is medicine for their sickness, that is atonement for their guilt. So the twin concerns of evangelism is that the weary, sinful soul would come to know, both in this age and in the age to come, the forgiveness and comfort and joy of God dwelling within them by His Spirit, and two, that they might worship God truly. That's why we do it. And so, parent, have this main overarching concern for your child. 
that they might know Christ and know the comfort and goodness of the Holy Spirit. They might become a true worship of God. You can't force them. I ground some meat yesterday. You can't push a child through the tube and through the grinder like that. It's going to take a lot of prayer and patience and kindness and discipline and love and you serving and going after Christ yourself. So first, nobody's it's a normal but awkward part of a disciple's life. Second, nobody's too far from God's grace. Third, our concern is for the eternal soul satisfaction of the person that they might worship God. Fourth, no one comes to God who does not come face to face with God's law and judgment. This is an often very neglected part of evangelism. They must know just as you had to know, the weight of the guilt of your sin. Jesus does not spare this woman. This is, this is crazy. Look at it. Verse 16. Who brings up her immoral past? Jesus. Go call your husband. <laughs> you, can you believe he said that to her? He knows. He's God. He knows. He knows what this is going to do to her. Go call your husband. You're right saying you have no husband, right? She tries to lie but not lie. (laughs) This is what we do. She tells the truth, right? While deceiving him. Jesus won't let her off. You're right to say you have no husband. In fact, you've had five. And the one that you're with now is not. He is bringing the condemnation of the law down upon her. He is bringing her face to face with her God. He is God. He's judging her. And so part of evangelism is always going to be this most difficult, uncomfortable need to humble the pride, to convict the heart, to so many times conscience, to aware of the guilt. So many times in evangelism, we want to cushion this. We just want to tell them that Jesus loves them and has a wonderful plan for their life. That's not evangelism. That's not the gospel. That is not the gospel. The gospel includes the law. The wages of sin is death. God is the judge of the living and the dead. He tells the wicked woman in John chapter 8 to go and sin no more. What turns people to Christ is the knowledge of their sinfulness before God and His holiness. How about you? Maybe some of you are kind of like that half-hearted Christian where you don't really take serious your sin in life because you just think God is nice and it's all going to work out in the end because you've really not admitted the fact of your sinfulness before God. That's a terrible place to be. So evangelism must include the law. 
Finally, evangelism is about Christ. Verse 26 is staggering. She takes him in verse 25, the Messiah is coming who's called the Christ, and Jesus says, yeah, it's me. (laughs) It's really wild. What a thing. Could you imagine that? Being that woman there? It's him. What is he saying? Yeah, it's only through him that they can have salvation. This is the main truth in evangelism. Yes, they need the law. Yes, they need to come under the condemnation of the law. But what we hold out to those that we love who are apart from Christ is Christ. Living. He did it. The only way to have this living water of the Holy Spirit within is through faith in Christ. The only way is for Christ to come like these Galileans and get to know him and love him. And look at how willing he is. He spends two days with these people. He explains them more fully the gospel. Often our salvation, our, our attempts at evangelism aren't going to be one-off conversations, but maybe Weeks of them, months of them, years of them with people. But we want them to know Jesus, so we talk about Jesus. We tell them what he's done, who he is, what he's like. We live before them in the joy of our joy of knowing Jesus, of explaining why we have hope in him, why we think he's so good, of why we have greater affection for him than we do for golf. Uh-huh. Or whatever. Why do you love Jesus so much? Do you love him? We want people to know him. And so that's it. Open your heart to this. Look at the world a little differently. Those that you're going to go to work with tomorrow. School with. Live in your house with. Come across at Aldi. Ask God to bring up an awkward conversation and ask God to somehow give you the words to make an awkward transition to tell them about Jesus. Ask God for the faith to be socially awkward. To bear under that cross of, yeah, I know I should, but I don't want to. They're going to think I'm weird. You know, I know you all, and you're weird. I guess at the end of the day, it's love them like Christ has loved you. Isn't that it? Let's pray. Oh, Father, help us. I have wanted to not load on us a guilt of how awful we are at this, and yet we are. And maybe some are great, and so praise you for them. Raise up more who are as gifted at this and good at it and send them out, oh God. May we bless them, and yet, God, use us in this way. Use us in the lives of our children, maybe our spouses, and our relatives that we'll be getting together with in the upcoming holiday, Thanksgiving, Christmas season, our coworkers, our friends. God, use us. Give us a concern. Like, don't let us off the hook of this concern for their salvation. Make us very uncomfortable. 
Keep us awake at night. Because eternity is on the line. That they might know you. That they might have this living water dwelling within them. That they might come to be a true worshiper of you. That they might be a real blessing to this church or to others. And so, God, please use us and who we are to have faith and love to bring the news of your saving work through your Son to them. And then, God, would you help us to reap it, to see some come to faith, please. Encourage us in that, add to our number, and do it for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.